We're going to spend some time today in John 10. So we're taking a break from our normal series. We'll finish that in a few weeks after Easter. Uh, We're kind of more observing the traditional church calendar by looking at a Palm Sunday text today. So John chapter 12 is where we will be. John chapter 12, it can be found on page 899 in the Black Bibles, page 899. So this week and next week, we're looking at traditional calendar stuff, and then we'll go back to our 1 Corinthians series and finish that up. We've called that series, What's Wrong with the Church? And we've looked at this call back to Jesus how when we focus on Jesus, trusting Jesus, obeying Jesus, then things work out. Then we begin to uh, flee immorality in our life and begin to have unity as a church. But today, we're going to focus on Palm Sunday. Palm Sunday is a phrase we use. You might have grown up in church and seen uh, people using palms as decoration. That's because that's what happened historically when Jesus entered into the city 2,000 years ago. So we're calling the sermon today, The Surprising King. The surprising king, because it's hard for us to put ourselves in their shoes as that first audience when they first met Jesus, but he came in a way that they didn't expect. So he is king. He rules and reigns as king right now through the power of his death and resurrection for us, and that's where we've been in 1 Corinthians. We'll come back to resurrection again next week, and as we finish up 1 Corinthians, he is king. He really is. He's sovereign. He's in control of the universe right now. But he's a surprising king. He's not always what we expected. So as we set this up, before we read the text, uh, I just want to kind of key on a couple of surprises that the Jewish people were commemorating through their Passover celebration. Because when Jesus entered into the city this week was a uh, large celebration where a city of roughly 100,000 swelled to a city of about a million. Now scholars vary on that. Maybe it was 50,000 and it swelled to 2 million. But we're going to just say roughly... City of 100,000, metro area around Jerusalem, swelled to about a million people. Think of like a big professional sporting event where like everybody is just there in downtown, right? And it's just crowded and the traffic's crazy. That's, That's what it was like. What were they celebrating this week? What were the Jews celebrating? This was the Passover week. This was the central celebration of their identity as God's people. We sing songs about being adopted by God as his children. That was in seed form in the Passover. God had rescued them and made them his own in the Exodus. And then every year, they would remember that rescue in a celebration they called Passover. It was the most important festival that the Jews would remember. Every year, they would celebrate Passover. Two surprising king tie-ins in Passover in the Exodus. One, God showed that he was actually king of the universe when he defeated the greatest king in the world, the Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. That's part of what they were commemorating. God is actually king. And so the message for us, the message for the Jews, is there are a lot of powerful people in our world, and we can think that they're the king. God's the real king. And so God defeated the greatest empire in the world 2,000 years before. Was it about 2,000? Again, scholars disagree on how far back that was before here, but they'd been celebrating that every year. God's the real king. What's the second thing? What's the second surprise? The second surprise is the way that God did it. He did it through the sacrifice of a little baby lamb. That's surprising. God's the true king of the universe. He defeated the greatest human king in the world at that time during the Exodus. How did he do it? He did it through the sacrifice of a little, innocent, spotless baby lamb. Those are two important things for us to keep in mind as we read this text of Jesus as our true surprising king. So we're going to read... In John chapter 12, we'll start in verse 9. John chapter 12, starting 
In verse 9, when the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came, not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So if you go back and read in John, John chapter 11, that's where this story takes place. Jesus raises his friend Lazarus from the dead. And now people, of course, are, are going bonkers. Verse 10, so the chief priests made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. They couldn't stand that Jesus was getting this greater following now. Verse 11, because on account of him, many of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Verse 12, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him, crying out, Hosanna, which is God save us. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. Now his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. So we see the, the conflict increasing, right? There are people that saw Jesus rose, raised Lazarus from the dead. There are people that heard about Jesus raising Lazarus from the dead. There are these religious leaders that see Jesus as competition for their leadership. There are people that love Jesus. There are people that hate Jesus, there are people in between that are confused, and you've got crowds converging on the city. And in the midst of all this, Jesus enters in, and people praise him as the king, as the Messiah. And that adds to the conflict. That adds to the leader saying, oh no, the people are really starting to follow him. The whole world is following this guy. What are we going to do? We've got to get rid of this guy. This is, this is dangerous. So let me pray for us. We'll look at the text in more detail. God, we thank you that you indeed are king. And so as we gather here this morning, through our gathering, we are proclaiming your kingship. We're saying that we need to take time to worship you and to pray and to seek your will in our lives. We're saying that we need to study your word because you rule and reign and we need to conform ourselves to your image and to your teaching. But God, we're also saying that we need you. And so we pray that your Holy Spirit would be with us that you would overcome our distractions and our anxieties and the competing loves of our hearts, that you would awaken us to your goodness, that you indeed are our Father through the sacrifice and resurrection of our surprising King Jesus. Help us this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so Jesus is the surprising King. This week of Passover, they're remembering the Exodus. God's the real King. He defeated the greatest king in the world. They're also remembering little baby lamb as the, the way that they're saved. So Jesus comes in to that kind of set of expectations, right? He comes into the city with the Jews already having these things on their mind. God's a rescuing king in these powerful ways, defeating these ancient empires. And God's also a sacrificing king that sacrifices these lambs. And of course, we talk about this a lot. The entire sacrificial system ties in with this as well. We need a sacrifice to come in to the presence of God. Why? Because we are sinful. 
God is holy and perfect. We can't enter into his presence just willy-nilly. A sacrifice needs to be made. We need to be purified somehow. So this is all kind of floating around in the background as Jesus comes in as the new king. And so three big things that we see as the story unfolds. One is the king really saves. They're going to shout, oh, God, save us. You're the king. Jesus, come in. Be our king. Save us. But this king really saves. We need to work out, what what does that mean? What does it mean to be really saved by Jesus? Number two, the king finishes the story. We've got all these expectations. We've got all these prophecies. We've got this unfinished story from the Old Testament. This king finishes that story. He ties it all up. And then finally, the king calls you to follow, calls me to follow, calls us to follow, right? The king calls calls us to, to follow in what he's doing to imitate him, to be a disciple, So the king really saves, the king finishes the story, and the king calls you to follow. He's a surprising king. He's not what we expected, but he is king indeed. So we see, first of all, the king really saves in verses 9 through 13. Verses 9 through 13, the king really saves. Um, This is not uh, the political salvation we we may be looking for. It's right and good to pray that politics would improve that corrupt leaders would be put down and that righteous leaders would be raised up. That was a lot of the expectation in the prayers of the Jewish people of the, that day. A lot of times that's our prayers and our concerns as well. Um, we have to be careful about this. Christians are not to disengage from the political process. Christians are not to give up on that process, but we're just always to make sure that we understand that there's a greater king and a greater salvation, right? Like, I, I want things to be good for my grandchildren, right? I, I want things to be better in our society, but I I really want my grandchildren to know Jesus and to be safe from their sin. And so we've got to prioritize that thing. We don't don't say, oh, so those things don't matter, right? That's a danger that Christians have fallen into. We don't even care about these things. Who cares about this world? No, we we care about this world. We're supposed to represent God as kings and queens of creation and make this world a better place. But we've got to recognize the the greater issue at hand here. This king really saves. Look again at verse 9. You see in verse 9, this conflict that keeps building. When the large crowd of the Jews learned that Jesus was there, they came not only on account of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So people are curious, like, who can raise somebody from the dead? That's crazy. That's bizarre, right? And if you go back and read chapter 11, one of the greatest stories in the Gospels, the resurrection of Lazarus. It's an amazing story where Jesus says to Mary and Martha that he's the resurrection and the life. He's like, letting them understand that he is the resurrection. And so when he's raising Lazarus from the dead, he's pointing to something beyond that. And I've joked about this, but this text brings us out. Verse 10 says, the chief priest made plans to put Lazarus to death as well. We don't know when Lazarus died. We don't know if Lazarus died of cancer at the age of 60, or if Lazarus uh, got run over by a donkey when he's 45, We don't know if Lazarus got killed by the priests somehow in the chaos of this, and that just got, you know, kind of looked over because the story about Jesus is more important, right? We don't really know how how Lazarus died, but I think we can say safely that that Lazarus died. Jesus raised Lazarus from the death to show his power that he is the true resurrection and the life, and then what happened? Later on, Lazarus died. And so we talked about this a little bit last week. It's really important for us to pray for healing when we're sick. Pray for healing. God can heal you. But the ultimate healing is seeing him face-to-face in heaven. That's what Christians look forward to. And so we pray for healing now. We pray for the fixing of our situation now. We work to be good neighbors. We work to improve uh, where we live. We, we work to help people and to serve people, but we trust that there's this ultimate 
salvation, this ultimate healing, the word save means heal in Greek, this ultimate wholeness that we are looking forward to. That's what we're looking forward to. And we have to continue to remember that. So again, Lazarus is a sign of something greater. And here it's like they wanted to kill him because so many people on account of him, uh, account of the Jews were going away and believing in Jesus. Many of the Jews. Verse 12 says, the next day the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So we'll stop there. We've got a couple of Old Testament references here. We're going to look at the next one in the next point here. But let's talk about a couple of things that are going on. They've got the laying down of the palm branches, right? So if you grew up around churches, you see that a lot of times, part of the decorations of Easter week or Palm Sunday, we call it, because it's commemorating the day where they waved these branches, right? Um, so what does the waving of the palm branches mean? What well, was a part of some of their other festivals? It started to leak out into all of the Jewish festivals. Um, and so this was a way that the Jews would just kind of cheer and praise someone waving these palm branches. So we kind of start to see this tradition of the Jews being known for praising God and honoring kings by waving palm branches, okay? So this was kind of an ordinary thing in their life. Another thing that I think will really help us to understand this is um, this is figuratively rolling out the red carpet for an important person. So in the ancient world, remember, they didn't have the, quite the same paving we do. I mean, the Romans were known for having great paving and great roads, but most little towns had dirt roads, right? And so they would lay down the palm branches to kind of have a cleaner road to walk on. Again, like if you do an outdoor wedding, you might see this where they get like a roll of cloth and they'll roll out this kind of nice little cloth for the bride to walk over the grass on. Have y'all ever seen that in an outdoor wedding? Um, or we talk about the red carpet with famous people. You know, it's just a way of kind of having a, a cleaner, nicer surface to walk on. Um, I was talking to Kathy Arako about this. Uh, her daughter, Natalie, is one of our global outreach partners in Guatemala. They went to a quinceanera recently. We have a picture, I think, of them here. And in the picture, if you get a close-up, you can see the pine needles on the ground. So you'll probably have to like walk right up and, and study it later to really see that. But Kathy was saying they put pine needles on the ground there. In a similar fashion, they're covering kind of just the open dirt. And this is a way of honoring special guests for special parties like a quinceanera. It's also just a way of making things nicer, right? So there's just this like very practical thing that the Jews were doing in the ancient world. They were making it nicer. Why? They were honoring Jesus as the king. They were honoring Jesus as the king. So it's a very simple thing. And I think a question for application is like, what are some practical ways that we invite Jesus into our life, right? Again, metaphorically, how do we roll out the red carpet for Jesus? How do we honor Jesus, praise Jesus, show that he is important to us? Um, it's important to not overlook like, like what we're doing right now. It's kind of crazy that you guys got out of bed on a Sunday and came to church. Why'd you do that? You, you came to church to praise Jesus and to learn from his word. That, that, that's why you came. So, so you are doing that at some level right now. Healthy to think about what are some other ways that I can do that in my life? Maybe reading the scriptures in a daily way, beginning to worship God, beginning to bring some of these worship practices into my family life, into my home life, serving my neighbors. How can I, again, kind of roll out the red carpet, lay down the palm branches, um, honor Jesus as king? What are some ways you could do that? And then let's look at the, what they, they actually said, right? Look at verse 13. It says, they were crying out, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the king of Israel. 
So Hosanna is something like, save us, save us, O king, God save us. This is what they were saying. And it was wrapped up in the language of Psalm 118. So they had this whole set of psalms. They're called the Psalms of Ascent, which means uh, climbing, right? And so what does that, what does that mean? Uh, they would go up to Jerusalem for feasts. They would sing these psalms of climbing, these, these psalms of hiking up the mountain. It's a section of psalms, Psalm 118 is the last one. This is one of the like, top 40 hits that they would sing together, right? One of their favorite worship songs. This is one that everybody knew, right? Uh, we talk about this sometimes, pastoring churches uh, in a place like, or a church, in a place where a lot of people come and go from different traditions. There's only a few songs that everybody knows, right? Like every time you go to a new church, there's often a set of songs you're like, wait, what is that song? I've never heard that song, right? Even with classic hymns, they're like hymns of the Lutheran tradition and hymns of the Methodist tradition, right? But there are a few songs we all know. Raise your hand if you've ever heard Amazing Grace before, okay? And those not raising your hand, I think you just don't like to raise your hand. Everybody's heard <laughs> Amazing Grace, right? Like they're just, a song, they're just some songs we all know. This was one of those songs. They all knew it. They sang it all the time. They sang it climbing up the hill, Jerusalem, Zion. There was this kind of plateau area. So they would sing this all the time, and they're quoting this to Jesus, and this is a beautiful psalm. Go back and read it on your own time. But it's a psalm that weaves together that God, Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament, is their true Savior. And God also works through human kings, right? Anointed ones to save them. And what we'll look at more in the second point is only Jesus makes sense of this. Somehow God is a God who is the one who saves us. God does that. And he also works through human kings and rulers, Jesus is the first perfect human king. And so they're shouting, God save us. They're shouting this to Jesus. And the question for us is, are we, are we shouting that as well? Jesus, save me. God, save us. So just trying to apply this, two ways we can think about Jesus really saves us. Number one, do you recognize that not only do we need political salvation, we need economic salvation, we need emotional salvation, right? We need all of these kinds of salvations. We, we need healing in all of these areas. But there's an ultimate salvation that we need, and that is we need to be reconciled to God. Do you recognize that salvation that you need? And then are you crying out to Jesus to be the one who saves you? Do you recognize that gap? We're all sinners. That, that means we've fallen short of what God has made us for. We've fallen short of his glory the negative way to define that is we've done stuff we're not supposed to do, right? God said, don't do that. We were like, I'm going to do that anyway. That's sin. We break the Ten Commandments. We break God's revealed will. But there's also this kind of bigger glory picture in Romans 3.23 where it says we fall, fall short of the glory of God. Like, more than just doing bad stuff, God made us to be awesome. God made you and me to serve people in love, to make good decisions, to, to honor people, to care for people, to stand up for what's right, to be brave, to stand for justice. So, so we don't always live out the glory, the vision of all that he's made us for. So sin is, is not just doing bad things, which it is. Stop doing bad things, okay? But it's also falling short of his glory. The flip side of that is sin is like not being all the awesomeness that God made you to be not loving people perfectly and laying down your life for others the way that we see in this surprising king's life. And so we've all fallen short of that, and the only answer is Jesus. The only answer is 
him being the king that truly saves us. So how can you say Hosanna to God? How can you say God save us? Well, I mean, it's simple, just recognizing again, I'm a sinner, I need Jesus to save me, God save me. You can pray that right now. If you've never truly recognized that your problem is not church attendance, your problem is not how much better you are than your neighbor, ultimately, your problem is separation from God, and only Jesus can solve that by dying on the cross for your sins, by rising from the dead for your sins, by bringing you back to God, by making you his child through adoption. All you have to do is ask him, and he will save you. I would love to talk to you more about that, if that's what's going on in your heart and your life right now. For Christians as well, what does it look like for us to continue to say, God save us, Hosanna, Jesus, I need you. I think the Garden of Gethsemane prayer is a helpful one because our life is constantly lived on the tension between God fix my circumstances and God I trust that someday I'll see you face to face and that's, that's the ultimate fix, right? That's where the spiritual life is, is lived in that tension between those two things. And so the Garden of Gethsemane is where Jesus went to pray before he was crucified. And he said, Father, if there's any other way, take this cup from me, right? If there's a way for me to avoid being brutally murdered for the sins of the world, let's do that. But not my will, your will be done. And that, that's our model prayer. So when we're saying, God, save me, right? God, save me. Will you, will you heal my daughter? Will you fix my financial problem? Will you take away these terrible neighbors or convert them to Jesus, right? <laughs> Whatever it may be that's your immediate circumstance that is driving you nuts, it is totally good and right to pray those things. God, help me. Help me. Fix my circumstances. But not my will. Your will be done. This king has something better for us. And that's, that's, that's the prayer life of the believers, trusting, Jesus, I trust that you've saved me and you're going to save me ultimately. And so your plan for me right now may be to be a living sacrifice in this area but oh Lord, if there's any way to fix this, fix it now. And so there we see, I think, this tension of Hosanna, God save me, God save us, God save us, and still recognizing he's a surprising king. Sometimes he's saving us in a way that we wouldn't choose and is not our preference. So that's how that's fleshed out in our prayer life. God, I want you to save me, fix my circumstances, but I trust that you're gonna, you're gonna do it right. I trust that you're the real king. The next point is that the king finishes the story. So as I say he finishes the story, he's finishing a story that's already going, right? We talked about this some last week, saying that, in a sense, we live in the second part of the trilogy, all good trilogies. The second installment is the scariest and the darkest and the, you know, there's the most mayhem and death and, and you know, hopelessness. We're looking forward to seeing Jesus face to face, the end of the trilogy, but we live in the second part of the trilogy where things are kind of nuts right now. And so we look to Jesus and say, okay, Jesus is finishing the story, and that gives me hope to live in an obedient way now in this part of the story. So look at verse 14. We see this in verses 14 through uh, 19. It's John 12, not John 9. John 12, 14 through 19. And so in verse 14, it says, and Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it, just as it is written, fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming, sitting on a donkey's colt. That's a quote from Zechariah. Verse 16, his disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. Stop there for a second. Verse 16, it's really helpful when we're studying the Gospels to remember that the disciples were like you and me. 
Jesus had told them this. He had taught them and he taught them and he taught them. He spent three years with them, traveling with them, teaching them. And they didn't get it in the moment. Sometimes we don't get it in the moment. Sometimes it's later when we're like, oh, now I see. Now I see the full glory of Jesus. And so a theme of John is that Jesus' full glory is revealed through his death and resurrection. That's when people really get who Jesus is. That's where the story is really tied up. And here it's saying, yeah, the disciples at this point in the story didn't get the whole story. Jesus had to finish the story for them through his death and resurrection. Verse 17, the crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continued to bear witness. So you still got people talking about these amazing things that Jesus has done. Verse 18, the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they had heard he had done this sign. Okay, so John's saying more people are wanting to see more fantastical things. Again, sometimes we just want the immediate healing. We don't really want everything Jesus is offering. We don't really want Jesus to fix the universe and to fix our sin. We just want Jesus to raise a friend from the dead or to heal our sickness, right? And so we've got this tension with the crowds. Verse 19, so the Pharisees said to one another, you see, you're getting nothing. Look, the whole world has gone after him. We're seeing this just increasing crowd following after Jesus. And we see that a lot of times in the ups and downs of church life. We, you know, we have overwhelming crowds, all these people excited to see what Jesus is about, what the church is about, but not everybody sticks. And we see that in the gospel stories. But Jesus is the one who really finishes the story. The question is, is Jesus finishing the story in the way that you want him to finish the story? Or are you retaining authorship rights to the story? Are you the final editor? Or is Jesus the final editor? Who's in charge of this thing? I think a lot of times we're like, Jesus, I like your story as long as I get to clean it up and edit it in the end. And there comes a place where we just have to say, Jesus, you're in charge of the story. I don't get to write the ending, you do. Jesus finishes the story. That's what he's doing here. Even the disciples, the leaders of of our great institution we call the church, the founders were like, yeah, we didn't know what was going on. We didn't get it, we didn't understand it, but Jesus finished it. He edited it way better than we could have. They didn't understand the full glory until later. We, we see this fleshed out in Philippians 2, how Jesus gave up his full heavenly glory for the sacrificial glory where he became a human, where he died for us, where he rose from the dead. They didn't understand it until they saw the rest of that, right? Until they saw him risen from the dead. C.S. Lewis says that um, if you have a desire that can't be fulfilled in this world, if you have this soul ache that's just never made right, chances are there's something beyond this world that is the solution to that. And I think that's what we see here. When we see, again, the tension of there's a story being told the disciples didn't really get it, but then they got it later, and they got it later so deeply they were willing to give their lives for this story. There was something radical that had changed. Jesus was pointing them to eternity, to something beyond this world. And so again, what's, what's the story you're telling? Do you, do you have that soul ache? Do you have that emptiness and, and recognize it, but then do you too quickly run to finish your story by saying, you know what, I just got to do anything I can to numb this soul like drugs or drink or sex or pleasure, whatever it might be. I just, I just got to fix this. 
Or are you running quickly to the way of religion and saying, you know what, I've got the soul lake and I'm just gonna, I'm gonna be so perfect that God will have to bless me. God will owe me. I'm just gonna be disciplined more than the next guy. I'm just gonna do everything right and then, then God's gonna be in my debt. Where do you run with that soul ache? How are you trying to, to finish the story? Are you allowing Jesus to be the editor of the story? Let's think a little bit about how Jesus is telling the story just with the donkey. Again, this is a great symbol in the story. This is one of these things that appears in all the different uh, stories. On the left here, I have a picture of a great uh, draft horse. I think these are like some of the biggest horses there are. And then on the right, a little baby donkey. I think that's like a miniature donkey, so I'm thinking that was probably too small for Jesus. We, th we think Jesus was like a normal-sized man. Uh, but it just kind of helps you get a picture of the contrast, right? Think war horse versus cute little fuzzy baby donkey. I mean, that's, that's the contrast, right? Maybe this is extreme, but that's the essential contrast. Jesus comes in as our surprising king, finishing the story, entering the last week of his life into Jerusalem on a baby donkey. Clearly a symbol of peace and a symbol of humility. Absolutely. Now, there's all kinds of like rabbit trails you can go down. I think a couple of simple things uh, that we can remember. Number one, they were used to seeing proud Roman oppressors, conquerors on war horses, right? So they, they knew of that symbol. So this is a contrast to that symbol, right? This is different than the Roman power symbol. This is a symbol of weakness and humility. But number two, David often did this. King David, not me. King David from the Old Testament often did this. After a big battle, they'd ride out on war horses. They'd, they'd fight their battles. Then David and his sons would often come back into Jerusalem on a peaceful donkey to symbolize coming back home, to symbolize peace, right? And so in a way, it's like a very simple thing. He's just kind of doing what King David did, showing himself again as king in line with what the Hebrew kings did. But there's also this picture that is in the text of saying, this is a fulfillment of, of Zechariah. We have this prophecy in Zechariah 9. Again, the story begins to be told through the prophets. Jesus is finishing what the prophets started. He's finishing the story. Zechariah 9, 9 says, rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. What does that mean? That means children of God's people, children of God's capital, right? Zion is kind of the greater area. Jerusalem's a city name. We have a lot of these different names for this uh, capital area, this temple site of Jerusalem. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey, right? Baby donkey. As for you also, because of the blood of my covenant with you, I will set your prisoners free from the waterless pit. He's saying, I'm going to save you. Behold, here's a vision. There's going to be a king that's going to finish the story. Through the prophets, when they were in exile, God said, hey guys, the story's not over yet. When things were at their worst, when the Israelites were down and out, when their land had been devastated, God sent prophets to keep telling the story and give them little hints of the end of the story. A king is coming to save you. A king is coming to save you. And here we see that king is Jesus. Jesus is the king. So the question is, how are you telling the story? Do you recognize that Jesus is the king or are you trying to make yourself king? Are you letting Jesus write the story or are you trying to rewrite 
the story for yourself. Uh, here's a way to think about it in our, in our everyday life. Do you have to be the hero of the story for you to be happy? I know I long to be the hero of the story. I, I want a cape. I want to stop bullets. I want to do big things, right? And you know what God often asks me to do? To be faithful in just ordinary, slow, simple, daily ways. To just honor people, to love people, to do my work, to love my family, to serve my neighbors. Ordinary faithfulness. And so I think we are to follow Jesus, the king who rides on a donkey. Like, we're supposed to look like that. Now, there's a tension here, right? Because a lot of you guys actually ride on war horses. That may be like a tank or a Bradley or something, right? Like, we have a lot of military leaders in our church. Um, Romans 13 clearly says that that's part of God's plan, right? God's plan includes governments wielding the power of the sword to destroy evil. That is a part of God's plan. So this is going back to what we talked about earlier. We don't just give up on improving the world or education or politics. We don't just say, oh, that's evil. We only do Christian things. We just preach the gospel. But we don't actually, you know, serve people in tangible ways. <laughs> no, that's silly. We do both, right? And so for those of you that wield the power of the sword, those of you that ride the war horse, figuratively speaking, you're really going to have to work on this to say, what does it mean to me to wield the power of the sword as a servant of God? This is part of God's will that there would be governments that would institute soldiers and police. What does it mean for me to try to execute just war theory at some level to help people, but then be able to take off that hat and put on my Jesus follower hat and ride the donkey when necessary to serve my family? and to serve my neighbors, and to be committed to the means of grace, that the real fix, the real finish of the story is Jesus enthroned as king. So I continue to pray that the Lord would give you wisdom on how to switch back and forth between those hats. God really has given you the war horse, and you gotta be faithful with that, but God also is telling you to ride the donkey. What does it mean to be humble? What, what does it mean to, to apply myself to, to follow Jesus to give myself to you. You know what? The proclamation of Jesus, prayer. Again, we, we like to say in church circles, the means of grace. We're not gonna manipulate people. We're not gonna force people to convert with a, with a horse or a tank or a gun, right? We're gonna proclaim the truth of Jesus. We're gonna obey Jesus. We're gonna serve people. That's how we're gonna see people come to bow the knee to Jesus. So how can you be committed to both things and be faithful allowing Jesus to finish the story. The last point is that the king follows, uh, the king calls you to follow. We see this in verses 20 through 26, the king calls you to follow. Now among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks, and so remember verse 19, the Pharisee said, the whole world is following him, oh no, the whole world, and now verse 20, it's like, hey, some Greeks even are following him. Verse 21, so these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. <laughs> this is an interesting chain. This is just a minor, this isn't like the main point of what this text is about, but it reminds me of a truth. Um, some of you are introverts, and a good way to tell people about Jesus is to like go get your friend that's better at telling people about Jesus, okay? This is very common sense here. I think this is a good picture of that. That's not, I don't think that's like why this was written, but it's just an illustration of that fact, right? So some of you are like, hey, this, this guy asked me about Jesus. I'm not, I don't, I don't know what to do. Oh, I've got this crazy friend that's always telling people about Jesus. I'll go get that friend, and then together we can 
tell this friend about Jesus. So that's kind of what you see taking place here. They said, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And here's Jesus' weird Jesus-y answer, okay? Sometimes Jesus gives this kind of Yoda-speak stuff. You're like, wait, what? Uh, verse 23, Jesus answered them, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, he's saying stuff like this throughout John. John is building and building and building towards this, we'll say, hour. And this hour, the second half of the Gospel of John, is really a week. And even most of the time given to the second half of the Gospel of John is the last night of Jesus with his disciples, right? And so there's this like sharpening focus on the death and resurrection of Jesus as the way he is glorified, right? So let me, let me kind of paraphrase this. People want to know about Jesus. Hey, people, people heard you're famous, Jesus. People hear that you're healing people, Jesus. We're interested in Jesus. Jesus is like, you haven't seen anything yet. There's going to be the biggest surprise yet. He's about to die on a cross, and they have no idea. I'm going to truly be glorified, he's telling them. And so he says, the hour's come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Verse 24, truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He's like, you think I'm awesome, but I've got to die. This is the true glory. And he's picking up language here, if you've been with us, that we heard in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul talking about the resurrection. Paul saying, this is God's plan. Jesus saying, this is God's plan. Nobody wants the seed planted in the dirt. We just want the fruit. I confess, trying gardening again. I'm out there every day fighting the critters and the drought and working on it. I just want the fruit. I don't want the planting the seeds and the watering and the death and the pain. I don't want any of that. I just want the fruit. Jesus says, well, the seed's got to go into the ground. There's got to be death before there's fruit. Verse 25, this is where it gets really personal. So old preacher phrase have gone from preaching to meddling. Have you all ever heard that? Jesus is now moving from preaching to meddling, okay? Verse 25, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will be my servant also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. What's Jesus saying? He's like, all right, people want to see me. People want to follow me. That's cool, but there's going to be some people that don't stick because I'm about to die. Here's the true glory. I'm going to die for people. That's, that's the surprise of the king. And then he says, oh, and by the way, your job, my job, is to follow him. How do we follow you, Jesus? You do the things that I do. You mean like die, Jesus? Yes. And so in our culture, we haven't, as, as Hebrews said, many of you haven't uh, suffered to the point of shedding your blood, right? We haven't, we haven't gone there yet in our culture, for the most part. I mean, maybe some stories here and there, people getting killed for following Jesus. But the question is, what does it mean for us to plant our lives into the ground to, to die to follow Jesus. It may mean that your dreams are dying. It may mean that your vision is dying. It may mean that you're just offering what you have. It may, it may mean just the simplest, quote unquote, easiest level, just dying in the sense of, I'm going to give my time to love people. I'm going to give my money to support the work of the gospel. 
I'm going to give my talents in such a way that I'm going to help more people understand who Jesus is and be served and helped by those talents rather than just using my talents to make money. Just to be clear, making money is not bad. But how are you going to offer what you have for the kingdom? What does it mean to offer what you have, to, to, to bury that in a fruitful way, right? Not the Matthew 25, bearing your talents in the yard, but in the fruitful way of spending what you have been given. Being a living sacrifice, offering yourself for God. So the question is, what is it that you are called to plant? I got a picture of someone planting a seed. What are you planting? Are you planting money? Now, the whole concept of giving, we were just talking about this with some friends last week, it's often used in a twisted way, right? And the idea is if you just plant these seeds of faith by giving more money so that I can have a Cadillac, then the Lord will bless you, right? Now, just to be clear, there's this basic way in which it's pretty clear from Scripture that God often blesses people materially so that they can bless more people with the blessings they've been given. That works, but the problem is that preachers use that as a manipulation tool and say, it's a mechanical exchange, and all you have to do is give money to me, and then God will be forced to bless you. And, and kind of making it mechanical in that sense is, is not good, is not healthy, is not biblical. But God does call you to give. It, it may be money, it may be time, it may be your emotional resources, it may just be holding the hand of someone and, and grieving with them? What is God asking you to plant for the sake of the gospel, to, to let die in your life? Again, Romans 12, 1 and 2 is a beautiful picture of this. Offering our bodies is living sacrifices. Well, we need to wrap up here. We're running out of time. Um, Jesus is the surprising king. The, the Palm Sunday story is, is the story about Jesus coming in as king, but not the king they expected him to be. And I want to just tie it back around his surprising kingship with the story of Passover and how 1 Corinthians ties that in with Passover. In 1 Corinthians, again and again, Paul's like, man, you guys are like off the rails. You're sinning in big ways. Immorality is a major problem. One of the hardest passages we had to teach through in 1 Corinthians was in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, talking about immorality, depravity, sexual sin, and Paul calls them back to faithfulness that Jesus is the answer. Here's what's implied, and here's what's explicitly taught in other places in 1 Corinthians. That is, the more that we see Jesus as the real king, the less we'll, see, we'll serve these slave master kings of sin and corruption. So the question for you and for me is, who is the real king in my life. Paul says it this way in 1 Corinthians 5, your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? He's talking about their Passover rituals. They would go and ritually take leaven, take yeast or what would make the bread rise. They'd take that out of the house because it was a symbol of corruption, a symbol of sin. And they would just have this flat bread, this unleavened bread for their Passover celebration. So they were rituals where God reminded them to look at themselves and to clean up their house and to turn from sin. And this was a part of them remembering the sacrifice that had been made for them to save them from their slavery in the Exodus. He says, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are. Remember that you're pure. Jesus purified you. So act like it. And he says this in 1 Corinthians 5, 7. 
For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, sin and greed. That's the two issues he's really fighting with at this point in 1 Corinthians. So he's like, stop, stop celebrating that way. Celebrate Jesus. Celebrate that Jesus gave himself for you, this unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. Christ is our Passover lamb. He's the one that finishes the story. He is the king. He is the one who is ruling and reigning right now. He is going to return and vanquish every enemy. But the central way that he's done that, that he's empowered his kingship, is through his death and resurrection as our Passover lamb. Let me pray for us. God, thank you that you have saved us. You have made us your children. Help us to remember that. Just as our uh, Jewish forebears would remember every year that you defeated the powers of Egypt and empire, you rescued them from slavery, and you did that through the sacrifice of a lamb. Help us to see that, Lord. You will rule and reign. You do rule and reign. And you've done that through the sacrifice of Jesus. Help us to serve him and to praise him. God, save us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.